And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The grass withers, the fire fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we ask that you would give us spiritual ears to hear you, eyes to see. Uh, Soften our hearts, make them like good soil, uh, so that what you plant will not be taken up by the enemy, uh, will not be choked out by the weeds, by our worries and anxieties of this life. Uh, But Lord, that the seed will take root and bear fruit. We pray that you would do this work in us through um, God, our Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our series in, um, in Pursuit of a Healthy Church. And last week, if you recall, we talked about how truly considering Jesus uh, comes with a true cost and also true power to live in the here and now. And, and, and we are as Christians to consider him that way more than we consider ourselves. Uh, the quality of your faith and your uh, assurance uh, should be drawn more from your consideration of how he's doing and not how well you're doing. That's considering Jesus, right? Um, well, today I want to flesh out just a bit more about um, how that relates to believers and how that truly impacts us and consider the, the, the sort of the follow-up question, follow-up topic that follows naturally from considering Jesus, and that is considering believers. The, the big question may be, when we consider what a true believer is, what genuine uh, faith in Jesus is, what are we supposed to be looking for? Uh, there's probably a lot of ways we can answer that. And there are a lot of ways we shouldn't answer that. And I just want to take today to hash that out because, you know, if we're going to be a healthy church, we should know the difference, shouldn't we? Uh, the reliable marks of a true believer and the not-so-reliable marks. We should know that distinction if we're going to be a healthy church. But before I dive in, let me just say a couple of things on the outside. First, um, this may be kind of disorienting upon first hearing. Uh, We may need to follow up and have coffee and hash this out some more. Uh, We may need to pray about this more. You may need to reflect on this more personally because as we go down the list of unreliable proofs of genuine faith, you may find that you've actually been relying on some of these. And and so the undoing of that, the the deconstruction of that uh, can feel at first disorienting. But know that the point of this is not to shake your confidence in your salvation, but to actually fortify it. it. Deconstruction can be fruitful if you're, if you're reconstructing with something better and stronger, right? And that's the point, removing the unreliable foundations and pillars so you can replace it with better and stronger foundations and pillars, okay? The other note I wanna make is that uh, uh, I'm indebted to my seminary professor uh, named Nate Brooks. 
uh, for a lot of these insights I'm about to share with you. He's a theologian, he's a counselor. He, he teaches more than he writes, but uh, what, what he's written has been uh, incredibly helpful to me and some of which I'm sharing with you today. All right, just want to make that note as well. All right, with that, here's the outline. First, um, we'll look briefly at the four, what he calls myths. Four myths of genuine faith. Four unreliable proofs of genuine faith. All right. And then um, we'll look at the four reliable marks of genuine faith. And for the, the unreliable proofs, uh, Nate Brooks, he relies on the Puritan theologian, Jonathan Edwards, a lot. So he's drawing from him there. Um, and for the four reliable marks, we're going to look at the Apostle John and his writings, all right? It's not a typical three-point sermon, right? I mean, there's a total of eight points. But fear not, uh, ye of little faith. Uh, this, will be, this will be short and sweet and relatively painless. Um, so let's start with the four myths about uh, genuine faith, according to Jonathan Edwards. Myth number one. Myth number one is a person's intensity of feelings. A person's intensity of feelings as proof of genuine faith. Um, now, don't get Edwards wrong. He, he's pretty strong on feelings. Uh, he's known as one of those theologians that emphasize that loving God with intellect, sheer intellect, isn't enough. Uh, and that there ought to be true religious affections uh, that that really emerge from your heart uh, if you genuinely do believe. He stresses that time and time again. There ought to be joyful feelings uh, when you consider uh, your salvation in the Lord. But he also reminds his congregation that while religious affections can be products of genuine faith, they are not proofs. They're products of genuine faith, but not proofs. And the Bible itself gives us plenty of examples of this, uh, prime example being the Israelites. People who have felt strong, passionate feelings, grief over sin, right, tearful repentance, extreme joy in their deliverance, um, who then fall away, who then fall away from the Lord. And their kings as well, King Jeroboam, King Joash, King Saul, all at some point have felt strong, positive feelings towards God and God's word, uh, but in the end, they're revealed to have a heart of stone. Chances are you have seen this as well in your life, um, either in the people around you or perhaps even in your own life, uh, if you're like me, where there were heightened emotions during a season, uh, a season of strong convictions, right? tearful repentance, overjoyed response uh, to the gospel, and then uh, this gradual descent into the lowest spiritual valley you've ever been in. And uh, you, you realize, you, you feel like you, you've made a shipwreck of your spiritual life, your moral life. Right? Many of us have been there. So a great intensity of feeling is not necessarily proof of genuine faith and a tr truly born-again heart. It's unreliable proof. Okay. Um, is it a good and necessary product of genuine faith? Yes. It is, a, is, it, is it a sufficient proof of genuine faith? No. Okay. That's myth number one. Here's myth number two. A person well-versed in the word of God, the works of God, and the nature of God as proof of genuine faith. 
a person who is well-versed theologically in the word of God, the works of God, and the nature of God. Uh, this one pertains more to our knowledge, doesn't it? Right? This is referring to those who are just theologically so well-trained, well-equipped. Those who are able to contemplate theology at a very deep level. Their words about God also, so eloquent and persuasive. Jonathan Edwards says, that's that, no sign that affections are truly gracious, that they cause those who have them to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of religious things, meaning, I mean, he's basically saying there, talk is cheap. Okay. Uh, there's a very well-known Christian theologian and uh, apologist. He's passed away now. When he was alive, he was known as one of the world's best defenders of the Christian faith. Uh, he's had a very influential ministry across the globe, effectively engaging skeptics and atheists on the world's um, uh, well, most well-known university campuses. He's had a formative impact on me when I was in college. I looked up to him a lot. He's also brought a lot of people to faith. Right? He helped people make sense of the faith and, and led many to conversion. But shortly after he passed away, uh, it became known that uh, he had for years during his ministry, abused women, hid hundreds of photos of women on his phone, and even had a rape allegation made against him. It was a shocker. But I mentioned this shocking example because I think that's what it will take for an average Christian like you and me to shake off this very common idea that gets latched onto us, and that is theological knowledge and eloquence equals genuine faith. Do we not think that? I've thought that for the longest time. If you're theologically well-versed, that must mean, right, if you can articulate the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, you can defend sola scriptura, you can defend the five points of Calvinism, you can defend the doctrine of election, and you can, defend, you can explain the doctrine of sanctification in the most beautiful, eloquent way, you must be saved. You're not necessarily saved because of that. It doesn't matter if it's a prominent theologian or just a, a, a Sunday school teacher or pastor or parent or a lay member. Those who speak wonderful truths about God can remain unchanged at the heart level and not have a truly born-again heart. That's perfectly possible. That's kind of disorienting, isn't it? But also very important for us to understand. Right? Let's not make that one of those pillars we put as foundation of our faith. The thing is, Scripture does, right, call us to move beyond the elementary things, to, to deepen our understanding of the gospel and grow in our doctrine, right? Um, and that can be used by God for our good, for our deeper comfort and trust in the gospel. Doctrinal knowledge absolutely matters. The point is that knowledge in and of itself does not equate equal genuine faith. All right? Genuine faith does have doctrinal knowledge, but doctrinal knowledge alone does not equate genuine faith. That's myth number two, knowledge about God. Myth number three, a person's service to the church and to their fellow Christians. Service to church and to fellow Christians as proof of genuine faith. 
consistent with the previous two myths, uh, serving the church and serving your fellow Christians. Is it a good and necessary product of genuine faith? Yes. It should concern you when, when someone says they're a Christian, but they have no service to the church and no care uh, for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That should concern you. But at the same time, serving the church, serving other Christians is not in and of itself proof of a truly transformed heart. And the simple reason is this. These are all achievable through self-effort, motivated by self-righteousness. It's not that hard, actually, to fake it so you can make it at church. It's not that hard. And there are no shortage of examples of those who serve the church diligently for decades, pastor for decades, been on the mission field for decades, who then, who then walk away entirely from the faith. There's, there's actually too many, and one is too many, but there's too many examples of such cases. Again, service is a necessary product of genuine faith. It's just not a sufficient proof of genuine faith. It goes one way, but not the other way. All right. That's number three, lots of service, lots of just busy working at church. Now notice so far what the first three myths cover are, our feelings, our knowledge, and our deeds, right? What I feel, what I know, what I'm doing. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, these were probably the three most common things I turned to as proof of genuine faith when I was growing up in the church. Are you doubting? Well, feel more. Do more. Study more. And that's not biblical. It's not entirely biblical, is it? Because they're not all that reliable as proofs of genuine faith. Do we experience change in these areas as true believers? Yes. And it's good to desire changes in our feelings and knowledge and actions, yes. But are they to be taken as infallible proofs of genuine faith? No. That's when we get into trouble. What's myth number four? It's a person's confidence as proof of genuine faith. A person's confidence. And this one speaks to just the individual's own thoughts about their own spiritual standing before God and their relationship. Edwards uh, points out how there are people who are just absolutely confident that God saved them, uh, that God loves them, that, that God's given them a new heart. But Edwards says, being exceedingly confident does not make faith more or less genuine. Matthew chapter 7, you have a bunch of very confident people coming to Jesus saying, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and exercise demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And Jesus says to them, I Never knew you. Never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. And then in uh, Luke 18, you have the guy with no confidence. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Can barely lift his head up at church as he prays. Jesus says, that guy went home justified. Exceeding confidence does not equal genuine faith. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable who can understand it. Meaning our own perception about even our own spiritual state is often skewed by our sinful nature. It's like looking through a, a broken windshield. It's a distorted picture. 
So, so if, if our confidence gets falsely equated with genuine faith, right, that the danger there is that you are, you're set on a collision course with Matthew 7, aren't you? And that's why Edwards is cautioning his congregation to beware, beware of hearts that say, I feel confident. I'm really convicted this time. My profession of faith right now is at a new level. And, and, and those things that can also lead then to the confident sort of commitment statements, like, I'm really ready to change now. I'm ready to do anything for God. I'm ready to surrender everything to the Lord, even my life. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what Peter said? Lord, even if it's to my death, I will follow you. I will never, ever deny you. And hours later, uh, he denies his best friend uh, three times. Does God at times empower us to make strong, confident professions of faith? Yes. Does God encourage us to make commitments to change and to renew our lives? Yes. Do these things equal, infallibly prove that we have a genuine faith? No. No. Uh, He cautions us. Jesus cautions us from making professions of faith too rashly, too carelessly. Jesus says in Luke 14, count the cost. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? And that's his way of saying, be, be thoughtful about this. Patiently, you know, measure out the steps, calculate the very real specific changes and commitments that you will be making when you choose to follow Jesus. Don't just make a profession of faith. Calculate the cost of that profession. So a person's confidence, I'm ready, I'm ready to profess him. That's myth number four. Again, I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard this, uh, it really did feel like a rug was being pulled from underneath me. Uh, Because many of these myths I had at many points in my life considered to be absolute proofs of genuine faith. As if by having these things, I can know that I'm a true believer. But these reflections and the words of Jonathan Edwards have caused me to really dismantle in a sense, right? Deconstruct my house that's been built on a sand. And, and a part of me uh, was ready to just become a spiritual agnostic. Like, okay, I guess I'll never know. And throw my hands up in the air. If you're feeling that way, right, please take heart and be encouraged because uh, God has not left us with that, with agnosticism. Uh, he's given us more assurance than that. Along with the warnings of you know, false assurance and deconstructing our false proofs, Scripture gives us reliable marks of a genuine faith. It does. And that's what our passage today is about in just one letter, very helpfully, uh, giving us several of these, these marks. So let's look again at the passage we read for today. And this time, I want to invite you to listen for one of the most often repeated phrases that John uses in this letter, and that is the phrase, we know. We know. 
And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. All five of these verses emphasize uh, the same point. We can know that we are in Christ. We can know that we have genuine saving faith. We can know that we have a heart that's been transformed. How? Well, John gives us a few marks. Marks that can be counted as trustworthy evidences uh, that true heart change has occurred. And that's, that's perhaps the first thing I should note for you as well, that we're now talking about evidences and marks, not proofs. They're not quite the same things, are they? I can't prove to you that I am not a very sophisticated artificial intelligence that traveled from the future into the past, although I may behave like one sometimes. Uh, uh, I'm not. I can, I can demonstrate, I guess, show you marks of a genuine human being who's here and, and who has a soul, but I can't prove that to you. Uh, can I prove to you that, that the 66 books of the Bible are inspired living and active words of God? I can show you the marks. I can show you the evidences that indicate that. But proving that to you in a, in a lab at Georgia Tech? No, not like that. Can we prove that so-and-so's faith is completely and absolutely genuine? No. But can we find some reliable evidence or marks that it is? Yes. All right. So what are some of these marks? Here are four that the Apostle John gives us. All right. Mark number one. Endurance. Endurance. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The, the keeping here uh, doesn't mean that you have kept it once. This is present and progressive. You're keep, you keep keeping it. That's what that means. Chapter 3, verse 24 also says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. There's a correlation between keeping God's commands and abiding in God. The two reinforce each other's continuity. Right? As you keep his commands, you abide in him. As you abide in him, you keep his commands. Right? Um, Nate Brooks put it like this very succinctly, durability opens up to legitimacy. Durability, in a sense, leads to legitimacy. In other words, the genuineness of one's faith is intimately linked with the perseverance of one's faith, the endurance of one's faith. When it comes to the Christian faith, endurance is an absolutely essential mark. Through endurance, we see whether a person has a faith that does endure through trials and go through those trials with, with their faith intact. That's a mark. 
That's a mark of endurance. James says, consider it pure joys, my brothers, when you experience various trials because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance, have it, when it's had its full effect, you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Mature and complete. These are the marks of genuine faith. Uh, the way that this can also encourage us practically is that we can now then as a church value the, all the ways in which God employs our trials and time in sanctifying us and building our character into the likeness of Christ to make us more and more like Jesus. Um, we can let him use all the trials and all the time together to work on us and guess what? On your neighbors too. It gives you permission to give them time, knowing that uh, they're as slow at changing as, as you are. And God's using time on them as he is using on you. You're enduring, and so are they. You endure them, and they endure you, right? As we do that, we see more and more the genuineness of our faith through our endurance, through our endurance. Mark number two. That we love the brothers, as it says in uh, chapter 314. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And, and this is distinct, right, from some of the traits we talked about earlier. This isn't saying you serve the brothers a lot. Um, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It goes beyond getting along with them. It goes beyond feeling strong feelings about brothers. And brothers, by the way, here means the church. It goes beyond all of that to what? Loving. Loving. And what does that mean, biblically speaking? If it's not just this intense surge of feelings, what is it? What is God's love? God's love is a commitment. God's love is patient. God's love is kind. God's love does not insist on, on its own ways, uh, keeps no record of wrong. What? Love is not irritable. I don't like that. Love is brave enough to confront wrongs and honest enough to rejoice with the truth. Love never fails, right? Never gives up on anyone. That's love. And this love, when it's born out of your Christian fellowship, your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ, it becomes a mark of your genuine faith. God is not telling you to do a whole lot for the church or feel strong feelings about other Christians, to love them as Christ loves you. Will we always love perfectly? No. Um, but when you experience this continual rewiring of your love, rewiring of your heart, make sure you love yourself less and love others more than you love yourself. Those are the moments you can be reassured God is working in you, and those are marks of a genuine faith, that you love the brothers. Mark number three, and this is probably less expected, but I think it's equally important. So let me spend a little bit of time on this. Mark number three is that you know who your enemy is. Chapter five, verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, okay? Our understanding of who we are, where we're from, crystallizes 
as we acknowledge who our true enemy is. That it's not our spouse, not our disobedient children or that mean person at work, people on 85. They're not our truest enemies. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the evil one who controls this current, present reality. The failure to acknowledge this enemy will naturally lead us to be confused about where we truly belong, who we are and what our mission on earth really is. Are we really here to thrive under Pharaoh? Under the system run by the evil one? Is that what we're really here for? Or to rage against the evil one? Uh, Have you guys seen the movie Oblivion? Tom Cruise? Two people. It's sort of an underrated movie. It really is. Um, I, I do recommend it, right? That's more from me, not from God. That's just, uh, that's just, yes. Um, it's a good movie. It, it's, uh, the, the premise, is the, the, the earth is devastated after a nuclear war against uh, alien species. Humans have won, but then because the earth is so devastated, they move into this space station and, and live there. Tom Cruise plays Jack Harper, this technician who stays on earth, manages combat drones that hunt down the remaining scavenger aliens while he harvests like energy from the water and then takes it back to the space station. And he reports back to the commander in the space station and her name is Sally. But what he begins to learn over time, uh, over the course of the film, is that Sally is actually the alien. The scavenger aliens are actually the humans. And he's been brainwashed to think that he's actually, you know, won the war and all that, but they lost the war, the aliens are in control, and he's being used by aliens to kill off his fellow human beings. What? What do you suppose happens as soon as he realizes that? Everything changes. As soon as he realizes Sally is not her commander, but her, his enemy, his mortal enemy, his identity changes, his mission changes, his community changes, everything changes. And the first domino was, who is my true enemy? Guys, do you know who your enemy is? That he's out there? He's after you, that he hates you, that he tempts you, he seduces you, distracts you, speaks intrusive thoughts into your mind and that unless we cling to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is the stronger man who can bind that strong man we are hopeless knowing your enemy makes you know who you are what your mission is and what your true community is who your true Savior is there's a there's a great measure of reassurance in knowing your enemy, because that tells you where you truly belong. I remember just walking out of a, a horror movie that I would not mention because I don't want to recommend this one. I, was, I watched a horror movie in the theater one time, and as I walked out, there was a lady in front of me exiting ahead of me, and her words going out, exiting the theater was, Oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. The... the 
that's a glimpse of, right, seeing the dark and knowing you got to run to the light, right? Uh, that's not my community. I don't belong there. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I want the Lord, right? It's a glimpse of that. Do you know who your enemy is and therefore who your true Savior is and do you run to him? Um, we're not from here, guys. This is not our home. And our mission is not to camp out here comfortably and, and obey Sally. Remember the hymn, O Church, Arise? Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. That's our mission. Know who your enemy is and you know who you are. You know what your fight is and what your fight isn't. It's not your neighbor. It's not, it's not those people over there on that side or the other side. It's the evil one who controls this present world. The psalmist uh, actually models this for us quite well. Right? David says stuff like, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Why? Because of my enemies. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path. Why? Because of my enemies. That's his prayer. His, worship, his life of worship is so infused with a knowledge of his enemy. And, and so should ours. Right? There is something missing if all we do in our worship is it's just me and Jesus. And, it's, and that's it. There's something very much missing there. You have an enemy. And that reminds you, that ought to remind you of who you are and where you truly belong. Here's the final mark, mark number four, is this, is to go back to what we talked about last week. Uh, the mark of a true believer does come down to whether you are currently still uh, considering Jesus. It's that you are still doing that. That at the end of the day, uh, you look to his faithfulness more than you look to your faithfulness. That you are resting in the fact that he is holding fast to you more than the fact that you are holding fast to him. And rather than, how do I feel about him? What do I know about him? What have I done for God lately? The question is, how does he feel about me? Uh, what does he know and say about me? And what has he done for me forever? That's considering Jesus and going back to that. If you're, as long as you are considering him more than you consider yourself, consider that to be a mark of genuine faith. Because genuine faith is not faith in faith, but faith in Christ. It's not faith in your, yourself and how am I doing, but faith in how is Jesus doing on your behalf. Go back to that. Never give up on that right, until you, you get home. Look to him for his grace. Look to him for his mercy. Look to him for his faithfulness more than you look to yourself. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for uh, removing from our hearts, removing from our minds, uh, the things that are not able to support us, 
uh, things that we may have relied on that you have not asked us to, to rely on. Uh, Lord, would you have mercy on us and, and would you turn our focus now to uh, the true foundation of our faith, to Christ and to his words, uh, his, his commands, uh, telling us to, calling us to endure in him, uh, to love our brothers with the strength that he provides, uh, to know our enemy who's been defeated and therefore have the courage now to resist him, uh, to know his schemes, uh, to count the cost of entering the spiritual warfare uh, in following Jesus and, and longing for, therefore, our true home. Lord, uh, shepherd us this way. Uh, bring this kind of health um, and mindfulness to, to our church so that, Lord, we will not be pursuing the, the unreliable marks, but um, the true, reliable, trustworthy marks that you have spoken to us. Lord, we, we pray um, that this would be true as we move forward as a church, as you build us up more and more uh, structurally and relationally, Lord. Um, may we be a people who, who considers Jesus and endures together. Lord, bless us this way, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.